Friends, it's, a, it's an honor for me to introduce our guest preacher for today, uh, the Reverend Dr. Wayne Lavender. Wayne, if you want to kind of start, uh, come and join me up here. Uh, Dr. Lavender is a United Methodist pastor, originally from Connecticut, um, but he's been spending a lot of time recently, in the recent years in Mozambique. As many of you will know, this church has a decades-long connection with ministries in Mozambique. Uh, and to that end, uh, Dr. Lavender is the uh, executive director and one of the founders of the Foundation for Orphans. And this is one of the organizations that we support uh, that uh, opens and maintains orphanages for, uh, for kids in Mozambique. Uh, he's also the author of seven books, I believe. He's, uh, uh, he's taught at universities in, in Iraq and multiple universities here in the United States. And uh, I'm just really excited to hear him bring God's word to us today. So would you welcome uh, Dr. Lavender? <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, Treach. Good morning. What a great church. And I'm so pleased to be here and appreciate the welcome and the invitation and the uh, announcement. I could listen to Nick all morning talk about me. <laughs> and there for a minute, I thought I would. But he kept it short enough. I think you're going to miss him, aren't you? I know next week you'll say goodbye. But you're in good hands with other pastors, too. So... This is the system we live in, isn't it? You, you get the good and the bad, and you've had the good, I think, for a long time. So I just want to thank um, Jackie and her husband, David. Uh, they've kind of been my host today. I didn't realize that David was going to be out there parking cars in this weather. Uh, thanks for the warm uh, welcome to Texas. I, I do live in Connecticut again, and, uh, and now you're a, a Stephen minister. So I'm with... Uh, special people in this church, and obviously Jackie as well. So I tell this story. I, I told different beginnings each of my messages just to the people who've come to all two or, two or three. This is a true story. It really happened to me. It happened to me in 2007. You know, sometimes pastors tell stories that maybe aren't as true as they could be. <laughs> At least in Connecticut. In Connecticut. Let me put it that way. Okay. So this happened in 2007. You may, remember, you may remember 2007, the wars in the Middle East were not going well, right? There were, we were in Iraq and we were in Afghanistan. There was those bombings every day. American soldiers were dying and so were people in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I got in this airplane flying from Connecticut where I was living to Atlanta. And I sat down next to a woman I'd never met before. Probably you've all had this experience. And we say hi and greet each other, name, where you're going. And then she asked me a, a deeply existential question. She said, what do you do for a living? So I was in transition at the time. I was ordained in 1984 and served churches in Connecticut until 2005. In my last church, I thought I would be there until I retired. I loved that church, and we grew dramatically. But I felt a call to work for peace, so I had written my first book. So I could have told her I was a pastor, because I was still a pastor. I could have told her I was an author. I was going up and down the East Coast speaking, so I could have told her I was a speaker. I'd established a nonprofit. I'd gone back to school, and I was earning my PhD. I could have told her I was a student. But, you know, I was almost like 50 years old. I didn't want to tell her I was a student. That felt embarrassing. So all this went through my mind in, like, literally a second. And then I said something I'd never said to anybody before. I said to her, I'm a peacemaker. 
because that was what I felt like I'd been called to do, was to make peace. So she looked down for like a beat, and then she looked me right between the eyes, and she said, you're not doing a very good job of it. <laughs> and uh, I think she meant it to be funny. It was funny, we both laughed. And then I read my book, she read her book. When we got to Atlanta, she went this way, I went that way. I've never seen her again, although I've been through the Atlanta airport several times, so maybe I did, but I wish I could see her today because I'm proud, and I know pride is a sin, right? But I'm proud to be the executive director of the Foundation for Orphans, and I'm here to thank you for your support and to encourage you as we move forward into the future. So the text that I was asked to preach on this morning is from the book of Acts. And as Nick said a few moments ago, you're working your way through the book of Acts this month. And there was a theologian, I, his name just doesn't come to my mind. I wish I had thought about this before I could look it up. But there's a theologian who said, reading the book of Acts is like grabbing electricity in both hands. It is just wired. It's like reading through a, a suspense novel that you can't get to the end. So I'd encourage you not only to be here in church as you work through the book of Acts, but to go home and read the whole thing through in one sitting. It's a powerful book. It's an inspiring book. And last week I was preaching at a church in Salt Lake City, United Methodist Church there. There are United Methodist churches in Utah. Uh, and I spoke on the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which I think you did as well. And all the church members wore red. And, you know, we talk about the fire descending on the disciples and the wind of the Holy Spirit coming. So this text from Acts 2 follows that immediately. So Luke writes to us, all came upon everyone. I think it's going to be on the screen. Maybe not. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's a pretty powerful text, isn't it? It talks about how after, of course, Jesus had ascended and the Spirit had been given to them 50 years after the resurrection, how they were gathered together in one place, they were worshiping together, they were breaking bread together, but they had sold all of their possessions, given it to the church, and were living together in common. So the word common is actually derived from the Latin word for public. It's public. So we use the word common all the time, don't we? And where I went to college at Drew University, we ate our meals in the commons. They called the dining hall the commons. So we went to the commons and had our meals. I know other colleges have the commons. There's like the student activity place or something like that. In England, they have the house of commons. That's where the members of parliament go to decide the politics and to set policy for their nation. We have in New England these greens, like you know, all the towns have a green. 
but they're also called the commons. And that's where people used to sell their wares back in the colonial days and through, through the Civil War era and things like that. People would bring their cows and they'd bring their chickens and they'd bring their corn, whatever they had to sell, they would sell it there in the commons. There's some words that are also derived from this, like community, but also the word commune. In a way, right, this, this description of the early church, they were almost like living in a commune, weren't they? They had sold their possessions, given them to the church, and they were living together, and the church was growing. They had communion, right? Communion is the one loaf, one body. We all come together in communion. But the word communism is also based on this same root, the same word. Can I say communism in Texas? Right? Am I allowed to say that? Uh, I am not a communist. And in fact, I'm not one who would advocate that we live in communes. So maybe it's a good thing your senior pastor's away this morning because I don't think it's the best thing for all of you to sell your possessions and give it to the church and come live in the, the living center or whatever you call it, right? <laughs> but maybe we should think about that, right? This is the example the early church gave. And this worked for them because they grew like circles in a pond and ripples as the church grew out from Jerusalem through all parts of the Roman Empire and eventually to Europe and eventually across the United States. So how do we deal with that today? How do we think about these things, right? So I'm a capitalist. I believe capitalism is the best way to generate resources and wealth. But I'm concerned sometimes that capitalism leads to some people having too much resources and others not enough. So I have like a little bit of sympathy for socialism so we can spread the wealth a little better without being a socialist. Like how many of you have ever played the game Monopoly? Have you played Monopoly? So how does Monopoly end? It always ends with one person with all the hotels and all the money and everybody else going broke. And somehow that is happening a little bit, right, with unfettered capitalism with these billionaires. You know, $1 billion is $1,000 million. And we have people who have two and $300 billion. But rather than preach on capitalism and communism and socialism, I'd rather speak about John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church. So here's what John Wesley said about this topic. He said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And Wesley did that throughout his life. So when he went to college as a young student, he discovered that he was paying money to get his hair cut. So he stopped doing that and let his hair grow out long, like all the pictures you see of Wesley's got long hair, and he would trim it himself when he needed to. So not that I'm John Wesley, but my wife has been cutting my hair for years. And I'm not sure it's such a hard job because I don't have much to cut. But what Wesley did was he saved the money from his haircuts and gave it to the poor. He practiced this throughout his whole life. When he graduated, he became a professor at Oxford. And his first year, he was paid 30 pounds. And he tithed of that 30 pounds. He paid uh, three pounds in, in, in to his church and kept 27 to live on. The next year, he got a raise, he got promoted, he got to 60 pounds. 
he continued to live on 27 pounds, and that year gave away 33 pounds. And the third year, he got up to 90 pounds salary. He continued to live on 27 pounds and gave away 63 pounds. How many of us have that discipline? How many of us could say we did the same thing? What happens to us is as we get raises and promotions, we tend to live up to that level of salary, don't we? Right? We get bigger houses, nicer cars, go on nicer vacations. All of us do this. It's like this trap that we live in. It's this trap of consumerism and buying and spending. And eventually those things that we spend begin to own us in a way. So there was a Methodist preacher who was the chaplain of the Senate back in the 1950s. And he met the senator who came up to him once. And the senator said, Pastor, when I was younger, I used to tithe. I tithed all the time. But now I'm a senator and I have a big salary. I live in Washington. I have a house back home. He said, I have written some books. I do speaking tours. He said, my salary has gotten so big I can't tithe anymore. That's ironic, isn't it? So the pastor, Peter Lawry, said, well, will you pray with me? And he said, sure. So they bowed their heads. And the pastor said, Lord God, please reduce this man's salary so he can tithe again. <laughs> it's perfect, isn't it? So what would Wesley say, right? So this is a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand if you don't want to. But how many of you have vanity license plates? So I looked at getting vanity license plates in Connecticut. They were $70. I didn't do it. I didn't do it probably not because of Wesley, but because I didn't know how to do it. You know, I had to do it online and fill out what you want and pay the extra money. But what would Wesley say? He'd say, don't get vanity plates. Save that $70 and give it to charity. Right? So if we read that scripture lesson as Christians, and we're all Christians here, aren't we? You know, if, if not, you can speak to me after services or speak to one of your pastors. And if you're a seeker, you're welcome here. You know, this is where you come to find your faith and to deepen your faith. But if we're Christians, we have to read this text as seriously as we read some of the other ones and think about our resources. Wesley spent half of his sermons talking about resources and money. He was, a, he was a radical in this. He showed radical discipleship throughout his life. He gave up tea drinking in his 40s or 50s because he realized he was spending too much of his money on tea. And so he began drinking water. And he said after four or five days, his headaches went away. I guess he had a a real addiction to tea. But after that, he didn't spend any more money on tea. And he made a lot of money during his lifetime. He was very successful. He preached throughout England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. He published his sermons. He published hymns that he and his brother Charles wrote. He translated ancient books from Latin and Greek into English. He was like his own publishing house. So on today's standards, he made, in the height of his career, $250,000 a year. So an American who makes that, we'd consider them pretty successful, wouldn't we? But he gave it all away. He died penniless. He died beloved by the people in England, but without any resource, because he gave it all away, a radical discipleship. 
And here we are sitting in a United Methodist Church, descendants of John Wesley, reading this scripture lesson and think about these things. So I want to use that as the introduction into my work with orphans around the world and show you some pictures because a picture can be worth a thousand words, right? So the first picture is where we do most of our work. So that's Mozambique in green there. And many of you have been to Mozambique, so maybe some of these pictures will mean more to you. The next is from my first trip in 1998. I want to highlight particularly the girl on the bottom left. She's holding a child on her back. Can you see that? This is childcare in Mozambique. I don't know why I had to go to one of the poorest nations in the world to really experience extreme poverty firsthand and up close. But that's how she was caring for her sibling. These children, and Amy, I'm going to talk about this for a minute so you can switch back to the camera. These children we found at the Telish Orphanage in Telish, Mozambique in 1998. That was built by Carolyn Belshi. Some of you know Carolyn. Did you ever meet Carolyn? Do you know her name? So in the early 1990s, after 17 years of war, the church was all of a sudden be given, being given these children as orphans. And Africa then did, doesn't really have a history of orphans because they would care for them in families, in uncles and aunts and grandparents. But the war was so bad that all of a sudden there were all these orphans. So they said, what are we going to do with them? So the church had these buildings that had been a leper's colony that had been abandoned in the 1950s. And these buildings were remote, and they were in the middle of the bush. And Carolyn kind of converted them into an orphanage. She always hoped that it would grow and expand, but what she didn't know was just up the hill from a swamp. And the swamp, like swamps in Texas and Connecticut, had mosquitoes. Unlike the swamps here, the mosquitoes had malaria. So the kids were always sick and often dying. So when we went there, there were about 25 kids, and one had died the week before we got there, and one died a few weeks later. My church members in a church in Connecticut, we raised $85,000 and moved that orphanage from Telish to Cambini. We'd asked the director, we spoke to the bishop and the bishop's wife and the UMW people. We said, can we do that? I said, we've been praying for this for years. So we raised the money, we sent it over, and this is how they build construction over there. They, they first did the, the groundbreaking. Then after that, you see the shell of the building going up. And then the orphanage was done a few years later, and our faithful friend, Dudenay, standing in front of it. Some of you, if you've been to Mozambique, you've probably met Dudenay. We built that building for like 10 kids, and within a year, there were 30. We started agricultural projects with Dudenay, so they have chickens. And they started growing crops. So you all know tomatoes and potatoes. And one of my sons, Andrew, is going over. He's planting rice here. Uh, we, we built a bread oven. And now the kids get up early in the morning, some of them, and they start a fire and they make bread and they let it rise. Each kid gets two of those Portuguese rolls. And then they sell the extras in the marketplace. So they get enough money so they can do it again. So they learn discipline, getting up to learn a business, business skills, how to sell this. Again, capitalism, they get food. That's like one of the best things that we've done. Other pictures continue as we, uh, this, there's another son, Adam, who went there and they love touching his beard. And the kids, uh, he had a great time there and, and he took a picture of them playing soccer. 
They now have a soccer team because they're in the middle of this com uh, community called Cambini. He went north to Dondo. Dondo, there, that's the bishop's assistant in the black robe on the right. There they put a Bible into the ground on those cinder blocks in plastic to symbolize building the home for children, the orphanage on the word of God. And so when I go back there, I've seen this. This picture was from me there this past November. We're about 100 feet from where that Bible was buried in the ground. They still know where it is. They still go there. We can still see that the orphanage was built on the word of God. As, uh, as was said by Nick, I also taught and worked in Iraq from 2011 to 2013 after I, I got my PhD. Iraq has a million orphans from the war. Mozambique has a million orphans from poverty. This is the first class I taught in Iraq. These students were learning peace and conflict resolution. Then I established a chapter of the Foundation for Orphans in Iraq. And here I am going around. We went to several different locations where there were orphans. I'm playing a game with these kids. On a stage behind us are students of mine who helped me organize and set up a chapter of the Foundation for Orphans. This next boy asked me if I would be his father. And that's a really hard question to be asked. And I told him I would be his friend, but I haven't seen him since 2013, so it's been a while. I trained these students to be mentors for orphans in Iraq. Is that the next picture? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of order. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to a, a refugee camp, and it had snowed a few days before. I went there in December, so it snows in Iraq. Can you imagine that? I didn't know that before I went up in the mountains. But these are the tents that people came and lived in. And this is how many people were living in the tent. That's me on the right, but there's two more on the left. These people left all they had to live in a tent in Iraq where it snows in winter. And in summer, I saw 122 degrees. This young woman named Avon, her parents had both been killed. She had lived near... Uh, and I'm drawing a senior blank. Anyway, Damascus. She lived near Damascus. Her parents had been killed. She walked with her uncle and aunt to this refugee camp. That snow around her feet. This is what war does. War creates orphans. There's more orphans today because of what's happening in Ukraine. There's more orphans today because of the pandemic. They think 7 million more orphans because of the pandemic. So I trained these students to be mentors for orphans in Iraq. And most of them, their kids have aged out. I need to go back and see if we can resurrect that program again. They're all Muslim. Guess what? The Quran tells its followers 22 times to care for orphans. So if Christians and Muslims would follow our scriptures, we could take care of all the orphans of the world. I have some questions for you after that introduction. How many times does the Bible tell us to care for orphans? So my fight's at six tonight. So I've got a few more hours. Uh, and some of you have heard this already, and so you know. Some of you came to two or three services, but the answer is 30. 30 separate times the Bible tells us to care for orphans. That's more than any other group in the Bible we're told to care for. Often it's, a, it's linked with caring for widows. Often care for orphans and widows and sometimes strangers. But the Bible tells us 30 times to care for orphans. So as Christians, we should be caring for orphans. So who said these words? 
Care for orphans is the highest form of charity on the planet. Mother Teresa. People always guess Mother Teresa. That's a really good guess. I, I've spoken in so many Methodist churches and rarely does anybody know. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you the hint and you can all say the answer at the same time, okay? The hint is you're sitting in a United Methodist church. John Wesley. How come we don't know that? How come Methodists don't know that John Wesley said caring for orphans is the highest form of charity on the planet? Because we're not taught it, right? And why did Wesley say it? Because he knew the Bible better than all of us combined. He knew it in, he read the New Testament in Greek. He read the Old Testament in Hebrew. He wrote books about the Bible. He did commentaries on the Bible. He knew it said 30 times to care for orphans. And he had orphans in England at the time. He wrote that letter to George Wedfield when he said that. So if you're a United Methodist, you should be caring for orphans because it's in the Bible and because Wesley said it, it's in our DNA. It is in our DNA. But we've, got, we've gotten away from it. So somehow, some way, I want to thank you for your support and encourage you to do more. I have brought with me to Mozambique on the same trip, Democrats and Republicans. Can you imagine? <laughs> I brought with me rich people and poor people, black people and white people, young people and old people, people who believe one side of the sexual identity schism and some on the other. You know, the United Methodist Church is about to split. You all know that, right? We would have split a couple years ago except for the pandemic. We're splitting because we can't agree on sexual identity. But I brought people on all sides of these issues and if we work all day, eight, 10 hours with orphans, these differences we have, they fade in importance. We no longer fight. We don't fight over policies. We don't fight over health care and who should be the president and whether or not we should be ordaining gay and lesbian men and women and allowing same-sex couples to get married. We agree that orphans are the priority and we become friends and we love each other. We build the... We build a beloved community like the book of Acts talks about. We've got some more slides. I sort of cut away from them. I never know where the Spirit's going to take me. This is our plan for our new homes for children. We call them homes for children, even though they're basically orphanages. Each of those cottages on the top right in pink hold six to eight kids. We want to build six to eight of them. That, that plan is for more, but we may eventually grow. Down at the bottom in pink is the dining hall and the, and the uh, education room, and green is fields. We have a five-acre site that's been given to us in Manapo, Mozambique, another site in Sango, and this additions to ones we already have. The next slide shows the, the uh, cottages themselves. So on the left is the common room, the community room, right? Here's that word again. And there's two bedrooms on the right. Each of those bedrooms would have two cots. So four kids living in the top right, four kids living in the bottom right, a bathroom in between. We can put eight kids in a building like that for $6,000, $6,000. So how much does the average home cost in Dallas or Flower Mound? I didn't look up Flower Mound, but the average home in Dallas costs $321,659, at least according to Google. Um, 
I think uh, Zillow says it's closer to $400,000. And how many people live in the average home in this area? The answer is 2.6. So we can build a home for eight kids for $5,000. That's like 1 40th of what average house costs here. Think of John Wesley, right? Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Then the next slide should show what we've done in Mozambique. So those are homes for children that we've built or in the process of building. And the next slide shows what we've done in Sub-Saharan Africa, either ourselves with the Foundation for Orphans or with our partners. All these are on our flyers that you can pick up on the way after church or on our website. My friends at Treach, thank you for all you've done. I hope I've inspired you to think of the future and what else you can continue to do. The reason we're living in the midst of this pandemic are difficult and hard to explain. But there's 150 million orphans around the world. 16,500 die every day. We can mitigate that. We can be the church, not only treats, but the denomination that cares for orphans. And when we do that, I promise you, your church will continue to grow and to flourish. People will flock to your church. You'll be able, when people say, what church do you go to? I go to Treach United Methodist Church, and we care for orphans and vulnerable children. We're making a difference. We're saving lives. We're doing what the Bible tells us to do. What could be better than that on this hot Sunday in June? Grace, peace, mercy, and love.